And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hi, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we reading this week, Harmony? We are reading Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Do you want to give a nice little summary about Herland, Maggie? Sure. This book is about a group of three men who travel the world and on a quote-unquote scientific mission to discover humans and apparently come across a society that is entirely female. It is only made up of women and girl children. And they decide that there's no fucking way in hell that that actually exists. So they go out to sort of suss out the truth, essentially, about them and discover that it is, in fact, a society of women. And they get sort of taken prisoner, sort of ended, (laughs) sort of retreated as guests and essentially live among these women for a year and see what this society is actually like. Yes. And I think the big, big takeaway from this book is that women do it better. I mean, I don't, it's a very gender essentialist book, I would say, but also not at the same time, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, it's a utopia. It's wonderful. They're everything they do is better than any society that we've had with men. And it's interesting, too, because unlike a lot of utopias now or contemporary times, which I think are often disguised dystopias, this book, I think, attempts to be a true utopia. But because of a lot of problematic aspects with our contemporary lens, I think for me at the very least did ultimately end up reading a little bit dystopian because it's so uninclusive, which we will also get into. But I am curious before we dive in a little bit more to some of those things, what your initial gut reactions to the book were. Okay, so first, I really, for about half the book, I was like, all right, I'm here. Not quite half. And I was like, I'm into it. I like it. I don't understand why we have a dude narrator, but maybe there's a purpose. Then I was like, all right, where are the lesbians? Really searching for some subtext there, because I know this book was written in what? 1915. So I wasn't expecting like direct lesbian references, but I was definitely expecting some subtext, was sorely disappointed, got the true halfway point was like, holy eugenics, that really took away from my enjoyment, kept on reading was like, yay, education, that sounds pretty nice, also was like, yes, fuck capitalism, and then it ended on kind of a cliffhanger, I feel, so that was my whole, my inner workings. I totally agree. This is one of, I think, the more interesting classics that I've read simply because it subverts so many expectations for what I think people expect when they read a novel that was published in 1915. And it was interesting, I think, in some ways to see how some of these ideals did hold up in 2021. And then Largely, the heteronormativity and the eugenics stuff felt very like, ah! (laughs) But at the same time, you know, when you're, I think, dealing with 
things that happened in history, if you're not horrified by some of it and some of the ideologies of it, you're probably not really dealing with history. And of course, this isn't a historical text in the sense that it's nonfiction, but it is, I think, a historical text in the sense that it really gives you a great snapshot of what Charlotte Perkins Gilman as a human and as an activist, a really important feminist activist at the time, was thinking and feeling and promoting. So that was a lot of my gut reaction to this was some of this is horrifying. Some of this is still interestingly relevant. Yeah, I had kind of the same reaction to you on that. And that's why I'm really excited to learn more about Charlotte Perkins Gilman, because I didn't have time to research her before I came on and recorded, but I know that you did. So I would like to know more about the inner workings and whether or not she was a public eugenicist. All right, <laughs> it's, it's complicated. So Charlotte Perkins Gilman, some of you might know her from her most famous work, which is called The Yellow Wallpaper. It is in many English classes, one of those seminal texts that a lot of students read. And it is based off of the fact that women in this time period, she was born in 1860 and died, I think, 1932. So especially when she was a young woman, were often institutionalized for hysteria and things like that, when in reality, they were ultimately being abused. And there was no mental illness at all, but men were able to put women away. This idea started her whole feminist journey, really, I would say, because she was married to a famous artist whose name was escaping me right now. And she almost got put away from her for hysteria. When in reality, she was just trapped in a loveless marriage where she had very little agency and was treated like property. On top of this, she had two very famous aunts <laughs> who you will recognize as Isabella Hooker, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And she spent a lot of time with these two women, both very famous activists who really shaped her mind as a young girl moving forward. So Perkins Gilman is an iconic feminist activist. Her two sort of big ideologies, I would say. The first is Women in Economics, which is probably her second most famous work. It's essentially her manifesto. And it's all about the fact that women will never be free and equal until they are economically independent from men. One thing that's interesting about Gilman that sort of sets her apart from other activists at the time is the fact that she does talk about class issues. Again, partially because of personal experience, she grew up in pretty extreme poverty for the time and then made her way to a more middle class lifestyle as she got older. Her father was really bad with money. I think he was a gambler, but please don't quote me on that part. But she she grew up in poverty and was really pretty passionate about the fact that these issues transcended class, even if she wasn't so passionate about the fact that they transcend other issues. So part of what she fought for was this idea that women should be economically free, they should be able to own property, they shouldn't become property when they get become married to men. I think very basic stuff when you think of it today and how far we've come in the US, but at the time, revolutionary and was actually got her labeled as being a radical at the time. So she was really considered in a lot of ways to be the far left. The other thing she was really famous for was being known as being a reform Darwinist. So this is a little complicated, but essentially part of what she believed was that Darwin, when he was talking about evolution, was only talking about men and left women behind and said, that he was essentially trying to say that men 
men were evolutionarily better and things like that. One of her most famous quotes is, there is no female mind. The brain is not an organ of sex. Might as well speak of a female liver. So through that quote, I think you kind of get a sense of where she's going with this, that men and women are ultimately the same and that it's all societal conditions and societal pressures that keep women down. It, it keeps them uneducated. It keeps them dispassionate. They're placed in abusive conditions constantly through marriage, all of this good stuff. And she thinks fundamentally, again, that there is nothing different between men and women. I reiterate this because her thoughts on race are extraordinarily problematic. I think extra interestingly, from an objective stance, when you consider who her aunt was, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who, you know, was famous for being an abolitionist, I think complicates the picture that you can paint when you think of texts like Uncle Tom's Cabin and things like that, when you see her niece who was so closely raised by her. Because she believed that the races were essentially very separate, very dissimilar. Essentially everything that she thought Darwin was saying about men and women that she thought was wrong, she thought was true when you applied that to races. She thought it was possible for certain African-American Black citizens to kind of transcend that, but for the most part advocated for something she called enlistment, which was essentially enslavement, but you get paid for your labor. So it's like real fucked up, real messed up. And throughout this text, you can see, I think, a lot of this dichotomy in her land, I mean, the fact that it's an entirely white society that she's in. But it's interesting to me, and I think extra frustrating as a contemporary person, to see somebody apply one set of logic to white people and be like, yeah, you know, men and women are fundamentally the same. It's societal conditions that keep women from achieving the same heights as many men. And then apply that logic in the total opposite direction when it's talking about Black people, essentially. So... That's obviously a quick and very general overview of Perkins Gilman, but that is largely what she was up to. Oh, also, she had a daughter who she loved very much, took to California with her when she divorced her first husband. And then when he got remarried, she sent her back to live with her ex-husband and his new wife, which I normally wouldn't bring up. But this novel has a lot to do with the idea of motherhood as a state of being. So I think it's kind of interesting in that context. But that's that's the, the spark notes of Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Okay, good. So that clarifies a lot. So everyone who is listening to this episode right now, just know that this story, while beautiful and very eloquently constructed in a lot of ways, is built fundamentally on this weird sort of pseudo-scientific understanding of Darwinism and is inherently racist. And we can see that right from the get-go. They refer to Indigenous people, the, the three explorers, as savages. But I think that as a reader, you can be like, okay, well, is Gilman just trying to match the character to what the prevailing ideas of are of the time? And the reason why I brought up eugenics is because the eugenicist movement in the United States was really big during this time. And because she kind of, well, I would argue, explains the idea of how these women evolved into their society, you can really see some of the underpinnings of that that mindset throughout. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. So very much keep that in mind as we move forward to talk about this, that this is a, a an interesting book to talk about that has real value to break down, but is fundamentally built on a racist 
ideology that's prevalent throughout the whole thing. Real uncomfortable. I enjoyed reading this book, but I'm so uncomfortable by this. And I was uncomfortable by it, reading it too. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is going to be a hard book, not to jump too far ahead, right? But I think that this is going to be a hard book for me to decide whether or not it's feminist. Because on the one hand, the level at which it's deeply ingrained in racism is anti-feminist to me. But there is a level, I think as a historian, because that's my job, there is a level of like, not that I justify the past, but if this book didn't have these underpinnings, I think I would have been surprised because it was the prevalent mindset at the time. As Harmony said, this is when eugenics was at its height. And when you look at historical figures and and their thoughts, you often are going to be horrified by some of this stuff. And it's really important, I think, especially as white ladies today, to understand where the feminist movement got its starts, really, and where it came from, because you see all of these underpinnings in the ideology today in the way that white feminism works, even if it works, in some cases, more subtly and less in your face, you know? White ladies are historically and continue to be very racist. That's just what it is. So we need to work on that. Yeah, so where do you want to start, Maggie? I think I actually want to start with what you brought up with why it's narrated from the perspective of men. Because I have some thoughts on it, given the fact that this is an area of literature that I studied formally, but I'm interested to see where you landed on it. Okay, so this is not an area of literature that I studied formally at all. But I kind of thought that it was done that way because it's written as kind of an anthological account, like a personalized anthological account. And even though I know that in 1915 there were women traveling. It wasn't incredibly prevalent. It wasn't really incredibly prevalent for non-poor women to work. And this is a job that doesn't, it didn't go to poor people at the time. Yeah, I think it was just kind of to present it to the masses, to give it a more mass appeal. And also because it gave more of an outsider's account. I think that what was discovered here could have been discovered using a woman's lens as well. But I don't know, she decided to do a a man's lens. But I thought it was a narrative technique because we're looking at it as an anthropological society, I guess. Yeah, the main character is, you know, a trained sociologist, you know, however much merit you give that 105 years ago as to how much science he was actually doing. I think I agree with you that we could have seen these differences from a woman's perspective, but... I think that a lot of what Perkins Gilman was playing on here was traditional tropes of what colonist novels looked like, what imperialist novels look like. I compared this book really briefly before we started to The Heart of Darkness, and I see a lot of similarities in the intentions of the men who start out on this journey and continually throughout from one of the men, Terry, who is the biggest piece of shit on the planet when they're setting out to discover the society because they think it's either a sham or heavy quotations here. This is the word the book uses, savages. They think it's impossible to have civilization without men. And they're not just there to discover, but they're also largely there to conquer. And it's interesting, I think, in this context, because to them, they're not interested in the land necessarily, but they're very interesting in the conquering of women's bodies which is a thread that continues throughout. So I think that she's playing on this well-existing trope at the time that people are familiar with, even if they 
probably wouldn't describe it in quite those terms as imperialist fiction. But also, you do get a really, I think, deep sense of exactly what is quote unquote wrong with these women coming from a man's perspective of being like, and this is how all of these ladies subvert my expectation for what women should be. Yeah, I do think it's useful in that way. Although, again, I think that you could have still done that with a woman from our society, especially during this time period. But we get to see the gross misunderstanding of women in general and how the character becomes slightly more enlightened throughout. I'm not going to say he actually becomes enlightened because there is some real fucked up shit that he still hasn't gotten by the end. But he becomes more enlightened and has some moments of author insert intent and values towards the end. Yeah, and so there's, and he's also traveling with two other men who I think you're totally right. Our narrator, Van, ends up almost somewhere in the middle of the understanding lens. He's very much the scientist archetype, again, quotes, who thinks he thinks with a very analytical mind and thinks the scientific mind and the scientific perspective is the right one and it's the most important and that not to toot his own horn, but he has it. And then you have another archetype of man at this time in Terry who is the macho masculine man, the kind of man as Van describes that you don't want to leave alone with your sister. But you know what a man does after college essentially is his own business and we're not going to stop him. And then you have Jeff, who is in many ways, I think, a much softer archetype of man. And he ultimately ends up staying in her land. He likes it better. He seems to absorb a lot more of their teachings and knowledge, and he decides not to leave. Not to say that he necessarily reaches nirvana levels of enlightenment, but as you see these like three different types of men, they also reach three different levels of understanding of what's actually happening in her land, which I think is interesting. As much as I think this book plays on stereotypes of what women were like. I think that Gilman is able to play on stereotypes of what men are like too and purposefully reinforce them by having three male characters. I agree. I agree. And I think that in terms of those stereotypes, I think that your assessment of Jeff, just to go further into that, Van specifically regards him as being like whipped. He is the whipped archetype. But also I think Gilman is specifically talking about how society either degrades women or holds them up and worships them for their virtue, which is false. Even though Jeff decides to stay, right? We can see that the woman he interacts with don't like being worshipped in that way because it takes away from their humanity. He's not able to fully see them as human because he sees them as goddesses. So I don't know. I had mixed feelings about that because Van very much kind of describes him as a pussy, I would say. That is the word that would be used today to describe it. And I feel like Gilman almost reinforces that by exhibiting the fact that he does actually worship women and women don't like it. And that makes it really complicated, his depiction for me, because I think that out of all the men, he does end up with the best morals and like with the best understanding of why this society works and the best understanding of their values. I agree. And I think that something interesting is, so we get this entire novel from Van's perspective. This is his retrospective. He's come back to the United States and now he's writing all of this down. And even when he describes... Jeff near the end, he gets almost self-defensive about it 
as he's describing it and he's like you know like jeff is a strong man and jeff you know he's the kind of dude that would go out for his buddies and stuff he just has this weakness for women i think though that the reinforcing of stereotypes here was purposeful even though i think it is complicated in the sense that i feel like gilman the whole point of this novel to a certain extent right is that the way we talk about and treat women in our modern society i mean modern to her time largely to ours too dehumanizes them and breaks them down into archetypes it breaks them down into stereotypes it makes it hard to see a woman as a fully formed human outside of her relationships to other people especially men and i think that by stereotyping the three men so hard she forces the reader to take some of to do the same thing to the three male characters in a way that she breaks those stereotypes and shows females in the story as being very well-rounded and whole and then flattens and makes 2D and problematic the male characters. So I agree with you that it makes Jeff complicated but for me at the very least I saw a point to it beyond that. I see what you mean and I agree and I think the complicatedness is probably deliberate But I also think, too, that because we're getting things, and this is why I took issue with a male narrative narrator, because we're getting things from Van's lens, I don't think any of the female characters are particularly well-rounded. They're not particularly diverse. They're all kind of viewed as what Van terms female plus. They are women, but also they can do men's work. And they're also graceful like gazelles and all incredibly patient. And we don't get to really see them as real people. We see different characters, but like everyone behaves with incredible patience and behaves like a mother. But I don't feel like I get to see any real well-rounded female character. I think, though, that that was also intentional because the well-roundedness to me comes in the places where Van isn't editorializing what he's seeing. It's when he's, you know, directly quoting what the ladies are saying to him, what the women are saying to him, and directly pushing back against it and saying, in, in a lot of cases, really explicitly, you're not seeing me as a whole human. I think for me, what complicates that depiction is the we aspect of it because the female society, Herland, views itself as a whole and as a conglomerate and not as an individual to the point where at the end, plot-wise, these three men marry three women that they met, uh, the three women that they meet right at the beginning of the novel who are warriors for this society. And they all, you know, all three of the women don't want to have sex with the men and consummate the marriage, which is a separate conversation that we'll have in a second. But when talking about it with his wife, when Van talks about it with his wife, he's like, I feel like I can't even talk to you because everything is the we. And she's like, that's just our society. It's the we. That's how I think about myself is as part of this larger whole. And I didn't really know what to make of that. Because on the one hand, the Marxist in me is like, yeah, you know, we are a society. We have to think of the whole. But on the other hand, I think it did complicate what I perceived as being Gilman's intention in talking about the fact that women are whole entire individual people. I wonder if while researching Gilman, because in the little bit of research I did get to do, something was said about her being a nationalist. And I wonder if that relates at all to collectivism and collectivism as an ideology, because what's depicted here is a true collectivist society. The we, I felt complicated about that too, but I also kind of liked it 
because it very much pushes back against American individualism, which I think Maggie and I touch on a lot when we're critiquing today's society because it's so prevalent to capitalism. And I liked the collectivist aspect. And I also think, I don't know if this is just anecdotal, but I think that women stereotypically are more likely to think in we's because we are generally the ones who are trying to keep together the family unit. And I know that personally, in my relationship, this is a conversation I've had with my partner frequently. I need you to stop thinking in I and start thinking in we because that's what I do. I just naturally include you in whatever like planning I'm doing. You know, I make sure that you are fed as well as me. This is this usually has to do with food because I need food and he doesn't seem to understand that I need food. So when I need him to like step up and make me food, he won't get it right away. But Yeah. So I don't know. Is that true for you, too? Do you think she was playing on that as this being an inherently quotation marks feminine aspect? I think that's potentially true. And I think also maybe she was trying to subvert it because this theme sort of trickles out a little bit as the book goes on. But initially, one of the first stereotypes that these men portray upon women is that women can't be friends and women are always fighting and they're always jealous and even Jeff buys into it and Jeff is like well you know it makes sense to me that maybe these women aren't jealous because there's no one to fight over right like there's no men to fight over so I think that the we aspect is potentially also a pushback of that thought process too that real genuine female connections can't exist but I think that anecdotally also in my own life like this is true as well. And I think it goes beyond sometimes relationships and family units too. I think that female friendships a lot of the time think in we too, or even not friendships. You hear a lot of times about women protecting other women in public when you they think somebody's being followed and stuff like that. There's a very, I think, largely collective ideology of if I see another woman in danger, I'm going to go bring her into my friend group really fast and like they hug her and let her know what's going on that I think men probably largely might not have to think about as often because violence against their bodies is less prevalent, although still very real and, you know, male victims aren't talked about enough simultaneously. But women are conditioned in that way to clump together because there's safety in numbers. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to talk very briefly about you mentioned Jeff's perspective about how they're not jealous because there's no one there to fight over and we were talking a little bit about Jeff being a complicated character but when I read that I was kind of in ingredients with him because when we see female cattiness I guess and I'm thinking a lot about my own experiences in middle school but also just the way that it's depicted in literature and stuff it's always set up the way patriarchy works is to pit woman against woman. So of course, in the absence of patriarchy, people are going to be happy with one another, I guess. I don't know. That just feels very real to my own personal experiences. And I feel like the patriarchy does actively pit us against each other. So go down. <laughs> and I think that especially in a book that's very much dealing in hyperbole, because this one is to me to make a point, that's poignant and probably true. The place where you disagree with Jeff is in your own personal life, thinking about all of the relationships that you have with other women identifying people that have never been touched or fucked upon by a man. But you know, like even sometimes the strongest friendships, dudes can get in the way. Well, I don't just mean that. I mean, I think that even like women exerting unfair power 
over other women, even if it's not because they're both interested in like the same guy. I think that not all the time, but most of the time is a result of patriarchy because there's this idea that there is only room for a few of us at the top. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just wonder, I guess, whether Jeff was thinking that far. (laughs) I don't think he was, but I read it and I was like, yes, go Jeff. Because, you know, he gets some things that the other characters don't get. Not nearly well enough. He should have really never been friends with Terry. I don't understand why any of them, especially after living in Herland for this long, still remained friends with Terry. It's fucked up. It is, and I think is even more fucked up and gross when you recognize the fact that Van and Jeff were aware of his behavior the entire time and choose continually to still be friends with him. I think largely because of money, too. Because Terry is the one who's rich. Terry funds this whole expedition. Terry's the only reason they're all there. So it feels very gross and icky to think about, even though that's ultimately a small part of the narrative, ultimately, I think. But... There is absolutely no solidarity. These advanced perspective, at the very least, very much falls into, you know how oftentimes when men think about feminism and think of themselves as feminist, it comes from a very male-centered perspective of like, well, if my sister or my wife or my mother went through this, he very much had that same mindset of like, as long as my women, essentially, whatever relationship I, I have with them are safe from Terry, then fair game to whatever else. And I think Jeff kind of did too. I don't think he liked it. I think he had more probably personal aversion to Terry's behavior in the beginning. But I think the fact that he remained friends with him throughout showcases that. But it's for him a his woman thing. But real quickly, I want to talk about just another aspect of the collectivism. And it's this idea of motherness. What's the word that they use? They use, yes, motherhood. So motherhood is the basis of their religion and also the basis of their society, which is kind of cool, but also has some problematic aspects. One of them, I think, relates a little bit to this kind of fucked up Darwinism idea that Gilman has, which is that she believes that this society operates essentially because it's similar to like how ants and bees work and we've done some episodes on bees before and how incredibly efficient they are and how it's really cool and how everybody you know cohesively works together for the good of the hive and like the good of their babies and that is the same unifying factor for this society but i think that it results in some weird things in the fact that a there is no feelings of sexual attraction in this society and then b there's a weird part that i actually want to look at look at the text with with you maggie to unpack a little bit about abortion so let's talk about the sexual attraction thing first so me looking really hard for any hint of gayness failed but i kind of feel And I don't know this for certain, but I kind of feel like that is an unfortunate, even though I know that this is 1915, we don't really talk about gayness. It's probably possible for maybe grown women not to know about it. I don't know. I I wasn't born in 1915, but I kind of feel like it's also a part of Gilman's weird Darwinism because many people believe that being gay was a sickness and there are no quote sick people in this society because everybody is so healthily, everything's so efficient that no one becomes sick because... They don't need to because there's no stressors. What do you think about that, Maggie? Totally agree. Totally agree. I think especially given the period that I know Gilman grew up in, again, 
this is Maggie giving an overgeneralization of history. Welcome to the podcast if you're new. But being LGBTQ was, being demonized for that has sort of faded in and out of vogue in history, not to make light of it, but societal temperature around that has shifted dramatically over the years. And it was at a, a height in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Again, to a certain extent, that is an overgeneralization. We have many, many, many records of especially lesbian sapphic relationships that happened in sort of this late Edwardian, early Victorian time period, all of that good stuff. But it was very much hush-hush things that happened over there. We don't talk about it. I think even versus, you know, Carmilla, which took place really in the, I think it was 1830s, if I remember correctly, you see a very different temperature take here of the fact that in the 1830s, People were more tolerant. So I feel like to a certain extent, it is purposefully sanitized out of the text, I think. I don't know if that's a Gilman thing or a publishing thing. I agree with you that it's probably a Gilman thing because she also has related to that some problematic ideas about disability and race and things like that. But that's that's my overgeneralized knowledge of history coming back. Okay, then taking away, you know, hetero or homosexualness, I also felt, I can't actually decide. I can't decide whether or not this book has no understanding of female sexuality, right? Because yes, asexuality exists, but also that doesn't necessarily mean that you never feel sexual attraction. And I'm not saying that some people might not, but also an entire society of people who don't feel any sort of sexual attraction, period. Because when you're a baby, it's natural for you to touch yourself. This is something that happens. And I don't know if they just, I don't know if it's feasible or believable that they could have read it out or because we're using like the bee metaphor. They're asexual in the sense of bugs can sometimes be not in our, our understanding of asexuality. Yeah, I felt as though the book was promoting this idea that women don't have sexual desire. Yes. To me, it felt like a, almost like a problematic take on how people respond to sexual assault. Knowing what I know about Gilman's background and what was happening to women at large at the time, women at this time, especially in lower classes, were treated like breeding horses where they just pushed out babies until they died. They had very little agency to say no. They had pretty much no agency to use contraceptives. It was up to the man in their life. And, you know, when they were diagnosed eventually with hysteria, a lot of the times they were sexually assaulted as treatment for that and given orgasms as like, ah, yes, and now you shall not be hysterical anymore. So I wonder if potentially, and this is speculation at large, so please take all of this with a grain of salt, but I wonder if maybe... Gilman's relationship with this means that she personally felt sexually averse after escaping her first marriage and sort of placed that on a whole group of women. And I say now that that's problematic because we know that psychological responses to situations like that can vary. Some people experience no changes to their sex drive. Some people do become sexually averse. Some people become hypersexual after all of these things. And all of those responses are normalized and okay and however you respond to traumatic experiences is all right in that sense. But I wonder if Gilman, to me, it spoke very much to this very traditional idea of if you go through sexual trauma, then you'll never be interested in sex again. And so much of what this book is based on is the idea that women need to be removed from men because men keep them down in all of these ways. So I wonder 
if sexual desire plays into that in that sense. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you for that feedback because I hadn't even considered because my main source for the sexual stuff was from the character Elidor who wasn't sexually assaulted. But yeah, I hadn't even considered that as a trauma response. I don't know if it is for sure, but that was just instinctually, I think, what it read as to me, especially given all of the ways in which sexual trauma is brought up as part of this book, you know, with the hints of the terrible things that Terry does and the fact that he does attempt to rape his wife, even though he doesn't succeed because she's able to call for help. So again, not trying to like speculate too far there, but I could write a paper about that at the very least. I think there's enough textual evidence to maybe suggest that. Okay. What was the other thing that I wanted to talk about before the sexy times? Oh, it was abortion. Oh, here we go. Okay, so it's page 60 in my copy, chapter six. So he tells her, essentially, they're talking about her population. Their little country is very isolated, and it's got a lot of mountains, and they can't really go, they can't expand outward without kicking out somebody else from their territory. So they're very adverse to killing at all. And what they did to solve that was to take away all of their livestock and become vegetarians. And then also to talk about how they were going to keep the population only a certain size. They were going to produce more children than they wanted. And so Van's like, abortion? Kind of. And they're like, no, we just like, we decide not to have babies. We get a feeling whenever we have a baby and we just decide to put that feeling off for a little bit, which is interesting. So this is the passage on page 60 in my version. Destroy the unborn, she said in a hard whisper. Do men do that in your country? Men, I began to answer rather hotly and then saw the gulf before me. None of us wanted these women to think that our women, of whom we boasted so proudly, were in any way inferior to them. I am ashamed to say that I equivocated. I told her of certain criminal types of women, perverts or crazy, who had been known to commit infanticide. I told her truly enough that there was much in our land which was open to criticism, but that I hated to dwell on our defects until they understood us and our conditions better. So that passage confused me because I'm kind of offended that she has anti-choice ladies here in this feminist utopia, even though I know that's 1915, but also abortion has been around for forever. So I don't understand. But then also he clearly says that he equivocated and he's not telling her the full truth, which leads me to not really, I don't understand Gilman's viewpoint. I don't either, because I was also confused, because the other thing here, right, with the fact that in some ways it is about the fact that women get the right to choose in this society. They don't have to have a baby if they don't want to. They don't have to have a baby if it's not right. They get to put that feeling away. They have the ultimate birth control in that sense without considering it abortion or like infanticide as Van calls it. I also marked that passage and was like, what the fuck? I don't really understand here. I think that my contemporary self wants to read it as a critique towards how Van talks about and thinks about these things. But I agree with you, it does get complicated when you have her reaction of being like, what the fuck, you know? Because I think inherently it's a society built on the right to choose and built on the right that women should own their bodies. But also there's this, and I don't 
know how i don't have enough information about how abortion was viewed in 1915 to rectify these things i wonder if it was a publishing choice i don't know i guess i understand the logic behind it because their whole thing is motherhood that's what unites them that's what makes women able to have this amazing society that men have not been able to create we're mothers you know but i just feel like if she had made the choice to have even I kind of would be more okay with you know consensual sterilization I think rather than this idea that they just magically don't have to have kids if they don't want to yeah and I think that paired with that there is the scene that happens in the chapter afterwards where she talks about the fact that as part of this collective babies are taken away from their mothers if their mother is deemed unfit in any way to raise the baby and that equally horrifies Van whose perception of motherhood is very different in many ways. But it also, to me, I think then feels in, a, in some ways anti-pro-choice because there's a much different, a lot of the reasons that a mother could choose to abort are, are sort of invalidated and taken away when you have this idea that you're not by yourself with a baby who's feeding off of you and your body and your money because it's raised in this collective society and if for whatever reason you can't do it there's people to fall back on there's many reasons that pregnancy is extremely dangerous for some women and also you know it's fine full stop to just not want to have kids and that's your whole reason i don't think that would have been as accepted in 1915 though so i feel like there's a lot of weird rationalizing that happens here that makes me uncertain of what gilman is trying to say yeah Yeah, that's where I came back to. So listeners, if you have any ideas, or maybe you're a Gilman scholar, write us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com because inquiring minds want to know. I think that for me, part of what is important that Van comes out of this book with is that Van eventually gets clued into the fact that his life as a man in his society is significantly better and different than a woman's life and it's really the first time that he ever thinks about it it seems like in the novel and I feel like it's an important breakthrough to read even though ultimately I feel like his choices at the end to go back and to bring his wife with him sort of negate some of those learnings especially because part of the cliffhanger is not just the fact that he brought his wife back but also the fact that you understand from the beginning that he didn't tell her everything she needed to know when she goes back to civilized heavy quotes society so i want to just read this passage really quick that relates to this chapter nine he's talking about the life cycle of the man and the woman essentially while we're talking Though, while Maggie looks for that, I do want to push back just a little bit on something you said. He does eventually tell Elendor or tries to describe the horrors of his society, but because she's never experienced true horror, because she lives in a literal utopia, which is a theme throughout the book, it's kind of some talk of heaven, and it's it's heavily implied that this is heaven that they're living in. She still decides to go anyway for the the idea of inquiry. Like she just she wants to see more. She wants to learn. And it's also implied that even though the society elders who've been studying these three men don't have a perfect grasp of what the rest of the world looks like, they're able to infer that the men haven't been telling them the whole truth and get a kind of 
big picture of all of the problems of the world. So on that note, I also think that there's some really interesting things said about education specifically within this book that I probably honed in on because my whole life right now is apparently learning about theories of education. But they have, there's mention of the Montessori school, which is a kind of interesting aspect and idea of how children learn. And it was just cool to see this book from 1915 depict education in such a progressive light, essentially, because young children don't experience schooling. They still learn, but all of their learning is done through play. And it's curated play sometimes, yet this society highly values learning. It highly values change. It's against conservatism. It sees no need for unnecessary pain or struggling. So there are a lot of really good aspects of this book. And I still think it's worth reading if you can stomach the heavy eugenicist principles, which aren't in your face, by the way, if you haven't read this book. They're just there and know that and know that the way that this is being described is built on that heavy Darwinism theory. Yeah, I think that for the the majority of readers, this isn't the kind of book that's going to make you sick to your stomach. It's in some ways more insidious than that to a certain extent, because it just, it's built on this foundation and it assumes that you are probably in agreement with this foundation. The education thing, though, is a tenet of Gilman's whole idea about feminism, which is that keeping women from education is essentially the reason that many of them don't progress past motherhood because they're all opportunities are stripped from them and their minds are essentially kept in the dark on purpose. What I was going to say about the life cycle thing was Van just has this first moment of realization where the women in the society are able to do whatever they want and have professions and they have lives and identities outside of motherhood. Motherhood is the tenet of their religion and it's important and it's a theme throughout the entire novel, but they also have things that they're good at and they get educations and some of them are warriors and some of them are farmers and some of them are scholars and they have other things and identities going for them. And she recognizes for the first time that in the life cycle of a man in his society, that's a given, right? That's all you get. And in the life cycle of a woman, it's just become a mother, raise children, become a mother, raise children, become a mother, raise children. And those two life cycles are separate. And he questions for the first time, even though, again, I doubt how much it actually sinks in, whether that's actually beneficial for society and whether educating women might make the whole, you know, might lift the whole world up, which I think is extra interesting because that is on a global feminism stage. A lot of what people talk about is the fact that when you empower women, you raise the quality of life for every single human on the world. An empowered woman raises the quality of life, not just for herself, but for her whole community, her whole family. So that to me was interesting to see as a, as a, a spark written 105 years ago. But yeah, there's problematic aspects to this book and you should definitely be aware of them and read this critically because if you aren't reading it critically, you could miss, I think, some of this really fucked up stuff. And it's important that you contend with that, especially as a white reader understanding the, you know, the tenets of feminism 100 years ago. Yes, Before we get into whether or not this is a feminist book, can we really quickly examine whether or not this is a gender essentialist book or a sex essentialist book? Because in many ways, it subverts gender essentialism or sex essentialism. But also, I would argue, especially with the depiction of sexuality, that it doesn't. And also, it's heavily implied, I think, particularly with the fact that the book chose to make 
these women unify around motherhood, that like this is possible because women are built different because they become mothers. Yeah, I agree with you. That was, I think, ultimately where I fell out was that I think that Gilman tries to subvert gender and sex essentialism in some way, but ends up just kind of reinforcing it. That was also how I felt about a lot of things that I think Gilman tried to do in this book. She was trying to, I think, question heteronormativity and in many ways ended up reinforcing it. So yeah, that that was my thought process about that. Okay. All right. Do we want to move on to whether or not this is feminist? The essential question. Yeah. The essential question. Is this a feminist book, Harmony? I think that it probably... So I think that there are some really progressive elements in this book that are even progressive by today's standards, particularly with the talk that to me, I read as anti-capitalist. And we didn't get a chance to delve into that, but just know that this is a collectivist society and this whole idea of struggle and competition and scarcity is seen to be like a very patriarchal masculine thing and is reinforced in the book as being that. And it doesn't have to be that way. So I think that like as a book written in 1915, it was definitely white feminist. You know, it's literally talking about a utopia for women. As a book written today, I think there are still a lot of useful things that we can take for our mode of feminism, but also there's a lot in there that isn't, that isn't true feminism. Like, I'm sorry, but when I say that, I mean true what feminism should be, right? Because I don't think people who are anti-homosexuality or anti-trans people are true feminists. I don't think people who are racist are true feminists. I don't think you're capable of doing that because you're not representing all women. And also, you know, Feminism is here to help women, yes, but to help people of all genders and to like help us understand that gender roles and patriarchy just shouldn't be. And I think this book does do that a little bit. So yes, important, especially important for the time period, but with a lot of caveats. And as Maggie said before, a book you really need to read with a critical lens. I agree with you. I think that for 1915... I mean, to be frank about it, I think for 1915, it wasn't white feminism. It it was feminism because all feminism at the time was white feminism, at least being labeled that way with that as feminism with that terminology. Yeah, because there were women of color who were organizing and who were doing work for other women of color. It just wasn't largely known as feminism. For sure. They were they were specifically and systematically pushed out of the feminist movement, though. So I think that yes, in 1915, sure. But I agree with you that in 2021, I would call this in certain ways, essential feminist reading, but not because I think it holds up as being feminist today, but because it's important to understand our history and where this movement came from. And because there are certain aspects, like you were saying, that still are progressive today. But it's irresponsible to just wholesale be like, yeah, this is still a feminist book because it was intended to be feminist in 1915, you know, because feminism was not just not inclusive at that point, but specifically exclusionary. So yeah, I think that's where I, that's where I fall on that. The answer is complicated. I think if you're really interested in feminism, though, this book is worth a read. Yeah, I think, though, 
it was a good thing that we talked about the eugenicist movement because I also don't think that you should feel pressured to read that if you're Jewish and you feel strongly about eugenics or if you're anyone who has experienced that. You probably could. It's not completely atrocious, but it's okay if you can't stomach that. Yeah. What you reading right now, Maggie? I am reading The Removed by Brandon Hobson. What are you reading? I'm reading that other book by the lady that wrote Gods of Jade and Shadow, whose name I need to pull up because I don't remember it fully. Sylvia Morena Garcia. Yes. And what's the other book? It's called Mexican Gothic. Yes. So that's what I'm reading. What's your homework for this week? In truth, I don't have time for anything anymore. So my homework is to not die. But also when I do have some free time, I really want to try and think about inclusivity in general. And I can do that in the times in which I'm doing work as well, because I've been thinking a lot about ways to be a better feminist and about ways in which, you know, my thinking could support transphobia or could support patriarchy or could be ableist. And it's just really, really apparent to me that when we made this podcast, I said feminist because like, I'm a woman, I like to study feminism, I like to read books about them identifying people. That's kind of my thing. But what I mean when I say feminist is really just equality for all. And I think that's what the movement is moving towards as we become more intersectional and understand how power works and how all of these things work to oppress people. But in order to truly not, in, in order to truly fight oppression, like it has to be something where you care about everyone. It has to be a collectivist movement. It can't just be about one sector of people, even if that's just all them identifying people. It has to be for everyone. So that's going to be my big homework in coming weeks is trying to think about ways that we can be feminist, right? And still fight for specific goals and, you know, be focused but also doing that in a way that supports everybody. What about you, Maggie? I think that my homework this week is also work-related. I'm, you know, a museum curator at a historic society. So I deal, I think, with these themes a lot. And what I hear from my audience sometimes, which is, you know, a, a general audience who might not have as much background information or share the same views and values that Harmony and I do, is there's still a lot of justifying that goes on of historic figures because that's just how it was at the time. So I think that I'm going to continue, I'm, I'm going to try and really hone in this week on ways in which we can fight that mentality and understand that just because something was the norm at the time doesn't mean it's okay and that we get to use that as a justification for why historic figures did terrible things. I feel like this book is the pinnacle of this, right? Is that like, I can understand why Charlotte Perkins Gilman thought all of these things and still hold her accountable simultaneously for thinking them, you know? And still enjoy some of her work, still take the good parts too, while understanding that she's a deeply problematic and fucked up human. Yeah, so I'm just going to continue to really center that in my work essentially this week. It's something that I'm always thinking about, but I work on an extremely small team right now and there's a lot of equity-based work that we have to do with history. So sometimes how audiences perceive historical figures in that sense can slip under the radar. So I really want to recenter that in my work as I'm making like an interpretive plan for our organization moving forward is remembering the fact that this is how a lot of baseline audience members come to the table thinking about historic figures. And we have to also push back against that 
explicitly, not just implicitly, by interrogating historic figures in our interpretation. Dope. All right. Next week, we're on a break. That's all for now, folks. Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.